0: Welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans. I'm your host, Doug Hill, and in this episode, we welcome Adam Dorowski. Adam is the product director for Sports Reference, makers of Baseball Reference, and Stadhead. He's been a Society for American Baseball Research, more commonly known as Sabre member, since 2013, and serves as co-chair of its 19th Century Overlooked Legends Committee. He created the Hall of Stats website in 2012 and is the host of two podcasts, Building the Ballot, about the Baseball Hall of Fame's era committees, and the Outsider Baseball Notebook, about baseball outside of the major leagues before integration. Adam tweets at Baseball History at Baseball Twit. He's a good follow. I recommend it. Adam, welcome to Conversations with Sports Fans.
1: Doug, thanks for having me along. Yeah. Uh,
0: looking forward to our time together tonight, Adam. Um, just you know, a little background if you could. What, what are some of your early re- recollections of being a sports fan?
1: Oh boy, early recollections of being a sports fan. So my I did not grow up in a sports family. My parents were not interested in sports at all., uh, for some reason, I just kind of gravitated towards baseball. I think it was because my older brother was developing an interest in it. And uh, one day he like, I remember he asked for a pack of baseball cards at the store. And I, I remember just kind of like, oh, that's, that's interesting. Maybe I want them too. And, you know, you know, once you see the backs of the baseball cards, that's, that's perfect. And and uh, I loved the stats. I loved learning about the players through those little pieces of cardboard um, and, you know, like learning about characters and, and, and like a, a movie or something like that. It was, it was amazing to, to get into the game that way. Uh, one thing my dad was interested in is computers. So early on, he got a, uh, a baseball simulator called Earl Weaver baseball and boy, I was just hooked. That was just, that was the rocket ship that kind of took me where I am today. If like you saw me as a kid entering, you know, historical rosters and stuff like that into Earl Weaver baseball, you would see what I'm doing today. And you would say, oh, that totally makes sense.
0: No, um, where are you at during your, your childhood? Are you, um, near, uh, major cities? Uh, do you have teams that you can eventually follow? Or are you like me, a, a kid who grew up in kind of the middle of rural in you know, rural America and didn't really have that.
1: Yeah, I was, I'm in new England. Uh, always have been right outside of Providence is where I grew up. So very much in Red Sox nation. So, you know, I was reading box scores in the Providence journal, I would go to my uncle's house who got the the Boston Globe and I would see it just, it seemed like it was a nicer font. There were more stats. They had every box. It was, it was like a, I would just open that up and just, you know, read the box scores and the leaders. And I just thought that was amazing and, you know, just take it all. And, and, you know, then I go home on my computer and I'm playing the 61 Yankees against the 27 Yankees. I'm, buying every baseball stat book I can. And, you know, this is probably, it started around 10 years old. Uh, so, you know, the perfect age to, to get into the sport.
0: And what era is this, that this is all taking place? You referenced the the baseball cards and, and everything else. Are we talking eight seventies, eighties, nineties? When, when does this happen?
1: 10 years old in 1988, kind of the, the perfect time, right in the junk wax era, uh, you know, <laughs> Score was the the new thing. Upper deck was about to be the new thing. It was uh, a perfect age for for learning about the game through baseball cards. And then, do you have any
0: you know remembrances of when you actually went and saw uh, one of your you know cardboard heroes in person?
1: That's actually a pretty good story too. I forget exactly which grade it was. It was in middle school. My science teacher had a Morning trivia contest every day. It was a sports trivia contest. And he could see that uh, I was getting a lot of answers right. And he could see that a lot of the other kids were, you know, bringing in almanacs or whatever to look up the questions and, and get their answers. So what he ended up doing was taking like the the top three or something. And then there was a in class test, basically. It was a sports trivia test, no books, no nothing. And uh the, the prize for his little trivia quiz was uh two tickets to the home opener. I gosh, I, I wish I remember which season it was, like 91 or something like that. And uh I managed to to win thanks to the uh the the in class test and my dad drove us up to Boston, dropped my brother and I off at Fenway park. I can't imagine like dropping my kids off at Fenway park uh, these days, but um, you know, just like meet me here at this time. I think we got through six innings because we horribly misjudged how long a baseball game would be, you know, that type of thing, but it was uh, a lot of fun.
0: Yeah. If only it were taking place today, maybe you could have gotten into the eighth or you
1: know,
0: (laughs) goodness knows even the ninth maybe with the, uh, the more rapid rules. So what did dad do while you were at the ball game? Do you have any idea?
1: You know, to this day, I don't even know. I was, I was, you know, 12 years old, so I didn't bother asking what he was going to do. He probably, you know, went to a, uh, gosh, I don't even know what my dad would do in Boston. He's the uh, the farming type. So I I don't think he was going to find a tractor supply shop in in Boston or anything.
0: Probably not. You're right. You're right. Um, So certainly a a deep um, level of interest in baseball. Did it did that beget something more than just baseball and, and if so when did that happen
1: it was all baseball until about 2015 it, like seriously just baseball like I I I dive so deep into things that I don't typ- typically have time to follow a lot of different things so uh I just stuck to baseball. But, uh, you know, fast forward uh, many years and I have three kids and uh, my son decides in 2015 that, you know, he wants to switch from playing baseball to playing soccer. And he decides that he's uh, he wants a soccer video game. He gets the FIFA 15 game and he starts learning about the teams. And he next thing I know, he asks about uh, getting a Borussia Dortmund jersey when he's on vacation with a. Uh, his uncle and his uncle actually gets it for him. So I was like, wait a second, if he's getting a, a jersey of this team, I should probably learn uh, what this this team is. And boy, I started learning about uh, German soccer and Borussia Dortmund in general and the the fan culture there and the fan culture in Germany as a whole. And I fell in love with that all over again. I I was kind of at a spot in my uh, baseball fandom where there hadn't been anything new for a while. This was a few years after the, the hall of stats was out. That was, that was kind of neat. I I hadn't really come up with anything new lately. And uh, I was like, oh, this is cool. And that was right about the time that I started contracting for sports reference. And they were talking about launching, uh, FB ref their, their soccer site. And it was going to have a whole lot of more, a lot more, uh, soccer stats than I had ever seen before. So through that process, I learned about the game as well through like helping them build FB Ref and, uh, seeing the stats for, uh, you know, this, this sport that was traditionally not very stat focused. Like we, we had the opportunity to be on the cutting edge of that. And, you know, I, that is like the team that I follow across sports now, like it, in terms of baseball, I, I'm a fan of the sport. I, I I don't watch any team religiously. Uh I watch very few <laughs> games to be completely honest. But Borussia Dortmund, like I have to watch every minute, every second. Like I'm on the edge of my seat, and that's that's the big one for me. I, I guess the natural
0: question here is why? Um what what bit you so hard by that soccer bug with that squad in particular? We understand your your son was kind of your, I guess, gateway in, but but how did you and, and why did you fall so hard for it?
1: Right. Yeah. He he liked playing with the team because they had cool yellow uniforms and the striker did a a a backflip when when he scored goals and stuff like that. Um, but you know, I'd learned about how uh the club is in, in Germany, the vast majority of the clubs are owned mostly by the fans and it, they're not like owned, owned by corporations or billionaires or anything like that. Very different from the English premier league. That was something that was very attractive to me as kind of a, an anti American sports thing as well. It's just totally different. And then the culture of the fans, like they have 80, like 84,000 people in this stadium. The thing just shakes when they're playing. It's always sold out. Uh, the fans are so into it. There's these, you know, displays that they call them tifos, where they've got these uh, huge, like, multi-story banners. Of, you know, it can be anything from celebrating the team to protesting something that the team is doing. The fans care so much about the team that they like will protest things that they're doing, and then the team will listen and and take action on that. And it's just a very different community feel than what I was used to in American sports as well. So that really, it, you feel like you're part of something. Even though I've never been to Germany, <laughs> that was my next question. Have you seen them in person yet? I have, but in Chicago. <laughs> of course, <laughs> they they came over to Chicago. They're actually coming this summer as well. But uh, yeah, I mean, I I love this club. My gosh, um, they launched a, a women's team last year as well, and and I kind of have taken on an unofficial role of. Uh, the women's team statistician, uh, you know, watching the games, posting the stats because they're starting in the lowest division. So, uh, you know, the stats are not easy to come by. So I've kind of been a a resource for that and enjoyed uh, seeing the team get promoted twice already. Now Uh, that's been a fun process as well.
0: I mean, that's exciting. I have not been bitten quite as hard as you have by the, by the mainland European soccer bug, I'm more of, I guess, a traditional EPL fella. But I, I'm now, now I'm curious. I need to mm-hmm. to devote some time to some of the other leagues. Now, do you have you ever wandered off to either you know the Italian leagues or the Spanish leagues or anything else, or, or are you just very monogamous with Bundesliga and Dortmund?
1: Mostly just the Bundesliga with Dortmund. I, I I tried being a Liverpool supporter just because they hired Jurgen Klopp, who was Dortmund's former coach, uh, the one who who uh, led them to back to back titles. But I I just couldn't get into the English league. I don't know. Maybe it's just because there's so much money involved. It's it. I don't know. I I guess I like you know. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. I never followed college sports at all either. Like the first time I ever followed college sports was at Sports Reference. We recently launched women's college basketball on our college basketball site. And that is how I learned about college sports at all. Like I didn't even know what conferences were. And like, it's amazing how similar it is to the world of soccer. And uh, following Dortmund is a little bit like following one of the, the better – uh the better teams of like a second tier conference, not one of the big ones, mm-hmm. but like y- you see these players come in, thrive. It's usually young and exciting players and then they move on to bigger things, whether it's, you know, the WNBA, the NBA, or whether it's a, they get, you know, scooped up by a bigger conference and in, in college basketball. It's kind of a very similar thing. I couldn't believe how similar it was. Um, so, Have I followed any other? I I briefly followed an Austrian Bundesliga team for a while when they had a a, a core of players that I really liked and they made a nice run in Europe. But that's kind of the only foray into other leagues that I've made. And is
0: I'm trying to recall, is Dortmund where Holland came from?
1: Yes, although he was actually in the Austrian Bundesliga first. Well, he was in Norway first, then he went to Austria for a year and a half, I think. And then he was with, with Dortmund. And Now he just, his first year in Man City, he set the premier league goal record. So. Yeah.
0: Was he all that in the proverbial bag of chips uh, last year uh,
1: in Dortmund? He, he was, but he had some injury struggles where he was kind of held back a little bit. He's, (laughs) he's been better in the premier league, I think than he was even in the Bundesliga, which is kind of scary uh, cause he was basically scoring like a goal a match. Um, and you know, there's, there's a lot of Bundesliga fans have a a complex where, you know, all the premier league fans yeah. say that, you know, it's a farmer's league, it's a small league, but you know, you know, our, our top guy leaves and actually is better in your league, you know, maybe, maybe our, our league is a little bit better than you think.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, uh, move on from, uh, soccer talk and and get back to baseball because it's uh, one of my loves as well um you you reference the hall of stats back in 2012 try to if you can describe to our listeners what that encompasses i you know i i would not do it justice i want to let the creator um give the uh give the elevator speech on that one
1: sure yeah this was like right in the the players that I grew up following were struggling to get into the hall of fame. And I was trying to find a way to kind of quantify hall of fame worthiness. So I created this simple formula. It's called hall rating. It's uh baseball references, wins above average and wins above replacement combined with a whole lot of uh, extra uh, adjustments that I make for a lot of different things. And basically what it does is every single player in history gets a one one number that describes the the quantity or quality of their their hall of fame candidacy. And then what it does is say there's 242 players in the Hall of Fame, what it, the Hall of Stats does is it kicks everybody out and then populates the top 242 by that hall rating. So it's just, you know, if if just the this stat uh chose what the hall of fame is what would it be and what ends up happening is about a third of the players are kicked out and replaced with a different third so you know your your jim rices and uh your uh i don't know jesse haynes and tommy mccarthy's are kicked out uh red shane dinst uh i, I think was another one there and they're replaced with guys like lou Whitaker or uh I get to pick some guys who actually haven't gone in because a lot of the players who have been (laughs) big (laughs) hall of stats guys have actually since gotten in, which is good. Um, You know, Bobby Gritch is another one or Kenny Lofton that type of guy.
0: Hmm. Um, If we can back it up a hot second, you know, I, I don't, my typical listener probably is not going to necessarily have a concept of what wins above average and wins above replacement are. So you are very adept at math, math, clearly, and stats. Can you give us a brief, what does wins above average and wins above replacement mean?
1: Right. Absolutely. So wins above replacement is probably the thing you may have heard some discourse about. Uh, It's called WAR for short. Um, So the listeners may have heard broadcasts even start to talk about that. Wins above average and wins above replacement are They come from the same place. So the the idea of both is how many wins is this player worth more than whether it's the average player or the replacement player. Now, wins above average is a little bit easier concept for people to get because average is something that they understand. But of course, the the issue is that in baseball, an average player is a limited and valuable commodity. So uh, they developed a you know wins above replacement instead to kind of uh what it does is it estimates that the amount of value that the player has over any freely available player that you could get because you can't just freely acquire a average player those players you know are you know making 18 million dollars a year and there's they're all signed up long term so those are very hard players to get but you know this is like the the quad a um. Uh, yeah. I, I don't. I don't know. A great example of a player today. When I started the Hall of Stats, I would be like, yeah, like Mauro Gomez. He was a a, a quad A guy for the Red Sox, who you know was would win like a get All Star games in the the minor leagues, but come up and you know not not hit very well in the majors. So that type of player. Um. And you know what's the value of combining wins above average and and WAR? WAR rewards. Over the course of a career, rewards longevity as well as skill. Uh, whereas wins above average, I see that as more of a peak thing. So okay. pe- people like peak and longevity. So that's why I combine the two.
0: Does um, wins above replacement, like let's say we have a, a catcher and we're talking about war for a catcher, does that then equate? A replacement catcher or just a replacement player in general. It's 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 that one's specific to another catcher, right? So there may be more value on a catcher than there might be on a right fielder, let's say. Is that right. correct?
1: Okay. Yeah, your 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 average or your replacement level catcher, um th- there are many components that go into both wins above average and war. uh So there's a batting component. So how good how, how, how much better above average uh, or below average that player that the player is. There's base running. Some of that is stealing bases. Some of that is avoiding the double play. Some of it is fielding. And that's compared to the average player at their position. But then the, the other side of that is that the positions also have value. Like a average catcher is much harder to find than an average left fielder. So that position has value as well. And all of those things go into war. So like a, uh, a a catcher with a 700 OPS is going to have a much higher war than a left fielder with the same OPS, that type of thing. Unless one of them is a dramatically better fielder, then that can, you know, tip things in, okay. in the other direction.
0: Um, Fascinating. So you start this in 2012 and you... Clearly, are kind of keeping it up, and we've had more Hall of Famers that have gone in now, so the number has increased to, you said, 242. Um, you referenced a couple of second basemen that were in my era as well, Lou Whitaker and Bobby Gritch. Um, what's the case for the two of them being in?
1: I'll start with Whitaker. Um because I have found an interesting stat for for Whitaker that I think helps explain how he's been overlooked. Cause you look at his career totals and they they those look like Hall of Famer, uh like a Hall of Famer. You look at his individual seasons and you're like, well, where's where's the big season? Like, where's the the Alan Tramble 84, the Alan Tramble 87, that type of thing? Whitaker didn't have those. So I was trying to figure out like, what is it about Lou Whitaker that he, he's providing the same value but it's like a different shape and a, a way to look at war is zero is completely replacement level two is like an average player playing for a full season is going to get about two two and a half war and then you know three is a little bit you know a little bit above average four you're looking at probably an all-star uh four to six is all-star level six to eight you're looking at mvp So if you look at the players with the most seasons between three and seven war, so this isn't anything above seven, this isn't anything below three. He's the all-time leader in seasons between three and seven. So the issue with Lou Whitaker is that he didn't have the peaks and valleys. He was just steady his whole career. He was like well above average his whole career, but not that like 353, you know, 29 home run season or whatever, uh, that you might see from uh, another player every once in a while. Now Gritch was a little bit different. He did have some high peak seasons, but he excelled at things that were overlooked at the time, like drawing the walk. Um, I mean, I say defense, but you know, certain players, they, they ride their defensive reputation a long way. Some of them ride it right into Cooperstown. For whatever mm-hmm. reason, he didn't. Uh, he, he won several gold gloves, though. He was a magnificent fielder. He had incredible power for a middle infielder, but incredible power for a middle infielder in the 70s and 80s doesn't translate to like super high home run totals. So nobody's looking at him and saying, Oh, he hit, you know, 40 home runs. He didn't do that. But compared to his his peers, he was fantastic. And uh yeah. So he has a little bit different shape because of that.
0: And then the other one, I think you referenced was Kenny Lofton. Aside from the fact that he could probably step back and hit a three on occasion. Um, what, what else do you like about him?
1: You know, a lot of these guys have something in common and that's that they were good at everything. And, you know, similar to Whitaker, he didn't have the peaks and valleys on a season by season basis. You know, these guys don't have the one skill that like transcends everything else. And, um, Lofton, if you combine like both of the base running components of war, uh, the avoiding double plays and stealing bases, I believe this is still true that he's the only player in history uh, worth 100 runs above average in hitting base running and fielding, like the only one. So that's incredibly well-rounded. It's really hard to get to 100 in, in base running. It's like maybe five players or something total have done it. Okay. So without
0: going too deep into whatever rabbit hole we may venture into at this point, is there is there hope for any of those three that we just you just referenced to find their way into Cooperstown someday?
1: It's really, really hard to make a case against Lou Whitaker at this point. I don't know what the case is against him. Uh, Bobby Gritch, he has a relatively low hit total relatively low batting average compared to some of the other candidates. I can see why some more traditional voters might be against his candidacy. I'm not against his candidacy. I think it was fantastic. But Lou Whitaker, I think, has to be soon. Like, I'm shocked that he wasn't on the most recent ballot. Now that McGriff is in, I think that that clears the way for, you know, looking at like a, a Lou Whitaker, Dwight Evans, couple guys from that era who I think it, it's really hard to make a case against them. Um, and Kenny Lofton, actually all three of them were on one BBWA ballot and then dropped off. And it's, it's hard to climb back from that. Ted Simmons recently did it. So that, that does pave the way for others to do it. Uh, but I think that Lofton for some reason, center fielders seem to really struggle. I don't know if it's because they're, uh, you know, the players in the hall of fame that they're being compared to. So many center fielders are among the all-time greats ever. Like, you know, you've got your your mantles and mays and griffeys and DiMaggios and speakers and and uh you know, very few center fielders have gotten in in the last, you know, few decades. Like Kirby Puckett was like among the last one. I guess uh, Andre Dawson, you could say they spent a lot of time there, but not too many center fielders are, are getting in. Um, you know, and we're seeing Beltron and Andrew Jones struggle. Um uh, oh my gosh, name escapes. Oh, Jim Edmonds, he dropped off after one ballot as well. Uh, in, interestingly enough, though, he, he was on the ballot with, uh, I was listening to a podcast about him the other day, so that's why I happened to notice. <laughs> on, the, on the same ballot with Jim Edmonds, 11 players who are on that ballot have already made the Hall of Fame since then. And that doesn't even include all the steroid guys and Schilling. Like all those guys were on that ballot. So, you know, you look at that, and of course he didn't get enough to stay on the ballot. That's it's uh it's wild. But that's why I made the Hall of Stats to say, well, Jim Edmonds deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, according to his stats. So.
0: um And how has that been? I mean, we're we're celebrating what 11th birthday this year. How has that been received in the in the no community? Has it been uh, pretty well received?
1: Yeah, it's it's led to, you know, me being able to do like a, a poster presentation at Sabre. I've done a couple other Saber talks on it. It's it's a topic that people seem to like to talk about. They love remembering their their heroes. And you know, if if they hear that, you know, their favorite player was overlooked, that's that's something that uh that that they like to hear. I remember I gosh, this was amazing a few years ago in, in Boston. I gave a talk about it at the Sabre Boston meeting. And uh, I talked about Alan Trammell at the time, cause he was not in the hall of fame. And uh, you know, a couple speakers later was, was Peter Gammons. And he actually talked about how uh, Alan Trammell and, and, and the hall of stats. And I was just like, how does he, he, he listened to me, you know, that type of thing. And it was, it was cool to, to have like the Alan Trammell resonate with him. And, you know, he, you see people gravitate towards, you know, the, I see the, the hall rating come up in in Twitter arguments and stuff all the time, and it's it's always fun to see that. I don't think the number is a be-all, end-all by by any stretch of the imagination, but it's fun to see it uh, injected into the, the conversation.
0: It's a different perspective, and it provides some fun things to talk about because Lord knows baseball fans, especially ardent baseball fans, love to talk about those things. Certainly. Speaking of talking about baseball, the two podcasts that you have, Um, building the ballot. Um, I've listened to a few of those, have really enjoyed it. It takes deep dives. It's not necessarily for the casual fan. I would say that. Um, But talk to us about what that is all about. Frame that for us if you could.
1: Yeah, building the ballot. So I'll say this. I'm a podcaster, but it's really just about finding people I want to have interesting conversations with and then I just record it with the hopes that maybe some other people would like to listen to it. I, I'm i not looking to, to get anything uh, out of podcasting by any stretch. So so I'm totally have...
0: stealing. I'm stealing your, your game then because I just like to talk sports with people. And I, run, I love it. Happen, happen to record. That's all that I'm doing.
1: I love it. So, you know, I have a, a, a wildly inconsistent schedule, like building the ballot. Like all the episodes tend to come out like right around Hall of Fame season. But the rest of the year, you know, nothing really comes out. Um, it started, uh, because a couple years ago there was the early baseball era committee ballot that was coming out. And that was going to be the first ballot in 15 years to consider Negro league players. It was going to cover, uh, managers as executives and umpires. It was going to be players. It was going to be pioneers. And there were like over a hundred candidates I could think of that could possibly be on that ballot. So I just started the podcast just to talk to people who were experts on each of those slices of the world and and see what they thought, you know, talk to Negro League experts, talk to Jay Jaffe about uh, you know, the the players in, in the AL and NL, talk to Joe Williams and Saber about like the pioneers of the game. And it just kind of I enjoyed it I just it just built from there and I've I've kept going with uh, the follow up uh, elections it, it covers topics like the changing rules of the era committees who's actually eligible um who will be eligible in in the coming elections so it's it's really really down in the weeds at times but uh, if you're curious to hear like who's going to be up for consideration and and do they deserve it you know those are the types of things that we cover
0: make Make my case for me for uh, Doctor Job. I feel like he should be in. What, what do we have to do to get him in the Hall of Fame? The man invented a surgery or perfected a surgery and gave Tommy John what more time with a repaired elbow and more wins with a repaired elbow than he had before.
1: Oh, f- funny story about Doctor Job in the Hall of Fame. Many, many years ago, like our local sports talk radio station, it's one of the one of the bigger ones in the country, but they were looking for a new blogger and they were like submit something and, and you know, try to be the next blogger for our site. And I submitted a hall of fame case for Frank Job. And I can just imagine that they looked at this and said, wow, this could not be further from what we wanted. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it was, I, I'm with you. I, I think that he's, you know, a pioneer and, uh, you know, I don't want any of this, put him in with Tommy John thing. No, Tommy John deserves to be in the hall of fame on his own. And so does Frank Job. And we don't often consider like pioneers anymore. The the most recent pioneer to get in the hall of fame was, gosh, I don't even know. Like uh, <clears throat> I, I, I couldn't name it right now. Okay. Well,
0: <laughs> it's, I think it's, it's long past time. I mean, yeah. it's, it seems as though what it would just be a shot in the dark, but I bet you close to 50% of the pitchers in the big leagues at this point have probably had, Tommy John surgery, right? And at some point in, the, in their baseball lives, not maybe as big leaders, mm-hmm. but at some point along the way, it just seems like it's a it's part of the job now.
1: Yep, totally agree. Yeah.
0: Um. So the Outsider Baseball Notebook. I'm not as familiar with that one. What What's that one all about?
1: That's kind of the. It's as if I um was taking a class and was inviting my own guest lecturers. I'm I'm just using that one to learn. Uh, I am doing a lot of research lately on um, baseball in, uh, you know, Black baseball, Latin American baseball before integration. And that's the podcast that I'm using to to talk to some, some Negro Leagues researchers, Latin American baseball researchers, just to learn about what what the the baseball landscape even looked like outside of the major leagues. And the more, the more I look into uh, these leagues and these players, the more I'm fascinated by how much talent there was outside of the major leagues at that time. And that has led to to me putting together a, a talk that I'm going to be doing for the Josh Gibson foundation next month, where I'm going to be talking about an outsider baseball all-star team, where I found like kind of like a player at each position that I'm going to talk about, who I don't know if they were hall of fame level, several of them were, I I can say that with, with uh, certainty. I don't know if all of them were, but very close, like just unbelievable players that played a little bit in the Negro leagues, but like some would play like 20 years in Cuba or 15 years in, in Mexico or play in Venezuela, Dominican Republic. And just this incredible, uh, and depth of talent that was all over uh the Western Hemisphere, basically. You you
0: referenced how you know some remained here in the States to play, but many went, you know, off the, the continental shelf to, to play professional baseball. Um, how widespread was that based upon what you've been able to research and 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 people you've talked to? And then what was that baseball like in? the Cuban professional leagues or the Dominican leagues and these other spots where a lot of these, these fellows ended up playing.
1: Yeah. There were, there were certain leagues where, you know, a few stars would go over and play with a lot of the natives and those stars would dominate, but there were also some leagues that the concentration of talent, it was like each team in the league was an all-star team. So let's take like 1937 in the Dominican Republic. Uh, uh, the dictator, uh, Rafael Trujillo, he wants to win re-election. He starts using his team as a, you know, as a way to to generate votes. And there's only three teams in the league. He brings in Josh Gibson, <laughs> Satchel Page, Cool Papa Bell, Sam Bankhead at shortstop, a couple guys from this, uh, this all-star team I'm talking about, Silvio Garcia, who ended up leading the league in hits and doubles, Lazaro Salazar, who we brought in as his player manager, uh, who you know hit like 300 and you know there's there's several other Negro league players on this team the other teams had martin de they had ramon bergania who is one of my favorite outsider baseball uh, pitchers uh this guy might have won 400 games uh if you count up everything uh and just this these three teams just battled out like that team Uh, with with bell and gibson and page they they won first place but they were 18 and 13 so they they still lost 13 games there were a lot of good players in this league and uh, you would get these these cuban leagues where you look at the rosters and it's like one through seven in the lineup is like potential hall of famers or some of them were hall of famers uh just unbelievable rosters and some of them you know i I looked at a couple, it's Cool Papa Bell's birthday today. I was looking at some of his Mexican league rosters. He was on with like one or two other prominent Negro league players, but his team just went, you know, 40 and 52 uh, or or something like that, which it's rather amazing to think that like a a team in Mexico with multiple uh, Negro league players could, could do that. That makes you think that the, uh, the level of play in these leagues, I think is it's higher than I thought. And I don't think a lot of people realize that. So I'm kind of on a quest to figure out, you know, what did it look like? And that's, that's where these, uh, this kind of team that I've I've assembled, uh, I'm using them as like my, my research compass, so to speak, to, to learn the leagues that they were in and and stuff like that. And, you know, as someone who's done a
0: little research in my life, but not to the level that you're doing, what is the availability of this type of data that you're you're digging up um, and and is it something that's more newly readily available if that even i'm not sure that grammatically is incorrect and i'm a former english teacher so that's not a good idea um but is it is it readily available or is it relatively new to the market to be able to even find this this stuff on these players
1: it has been available longer than i realized um i i sat on my ass too long not learning about Negro league and, and uh, Latin American baseball. And, and I like to think that I'm making up for it now. It, it's just, it was just a black hole. I, I, I always have been interested in the stats and I always kept telling myself, Oh, you know, the stats are not on the same level. So I can't really learn about it. Well, that that was wrong. I can use the stats to learn about it. The, the stats that are there and the stats that I need to go uncover and piece together myself, you know, for the most part, I'm not constructing stats from box scores I'm doing that for one team that we could talk about as well, but, um, I'm just kind of taking other people's research and, uh, piecing it all together for the first time. You know, nobody's ever taken every season from Silvio Garcia and just listed them one after another from every different country he's been in. But I did that. And all of a sudden there were 8,500 at bats, (laughs) 8,500, like that's a lot of, that's, that's a large sample. Uh, just so you know, it's some of it's in in the Negro League. Some of it's in Cuba. some of it's in in, uh, I think he played in like seven countries, so I could just keep naming countries. but it's just unbelievable. And you know what's what's the significance of Silvio Garcia? Well, he was originally supposed to be the one that uh, integrated baseball. Uh, the Dodgers wanted him first, but they said, uh, the Dodgers asked him. They said, you know, we want you if a white player is going to spit in your face, what are you going to do? And he said, I'll kill him. And they said, well, okay, we can't have that. So they, they went for Jackie Robinson. It's, it's, uh, I don't know how true the story is, but it's been told by many folks in the Dodgers uh, system. So uh, I I tend to believe there's at least some truth to it.
0: Wow. Um, So this is your, your current passion project. Your day job though, has you working at sports reference where I believe you've been able to now perhaps take some of this passion project and incorporate it into what you're doing there as well, because was it a little over a year ago, what major league baseball has now begun to recognize um, Negro league stats. And they're now, I think on the site, when I go to see, um, you know, those players, I'm able to see what they did in the Negro leagues and am able to see the big leagues. And I'm able to see a cumulative total and it's separated out without um, what was that like as a staff at, um, sports reference to integrate all of that? And, and, and what was that lift like for all of you and how rewarding was it for you personally to now see that mm-hmm. there?
1: That was just about two years ago that we launched it. Okay. So shortly after I even started at, uh, sports reference, we started working on it because that it took six months and it took work from everybody in the company. And it's the most rewarding project I've ever been a part of in my professional career. It was unbelievable. So we worked with the Seamheads Negro League database. Uh, They collected all these stats uh, over decades they've been doing this. And we struck an agreement with them to publish them on the site. And we wanted to make sure that we didn't just put the stats on the site and that was the end of it. Like the Negro Leagues were very different from the AL and NL. And we needed to make sure that our presentation was respectful of that and helped educate people on that. So when we launched it, we launched with a landing page that had a big description of of what we did and and what, what the differences were. We had commissioned several essays from Negro Leagues researchers or even like family members of players uh, to describe what the Negro leagues meant because it was it w- it was very different. We also described the fact that we did not have everything. There were only seven um Negro league uh Negro leagues that were classified as major. Okay, and there are others that could be considered major, and we're considering it, but uh, uh we haven't made a decision yet. And there were some teams that chose not to be in a league and they played independently but they were very very much major league quality so you know we had to essentially rewrite a lot of things that we've had on the site for 20 years like how do you deal with wildly different um uh schedules like totally unbalanced schedules or you know how do you deal with the fact that we we have we know the record for a team but maybe only have stats from of the games for the players, you know, those types of things. It was very, very in-depth, very difficult, but very rewarding when we shared it with people and saw the response. And it's, it has, it's the state of the art. If you want to look up where, uh, how, what uh, player stats were in the Negro leagues, that's, that's where you go. Yeah. It's,
0: you know, I don't spend nearly enough time on baseball reference. Would love mm-hmm. to get rid of the day job and, and just make that my job just to go through it on a daily. Um but it I found it to be fascinating and and I invariably even going into some of the minors and other leagues because I think mm-hmm. you even have like Mexican leagues and other leagues in there if you go deep and, and do some searches. It's it's remarkable what has been created there. And I just uh you know thankful that you all are doing the work because it's very much appreciated.
1: Yeah, I, I appreciate folks like you that are using the sites and who take uh, take the time to to share their thoughts with us. And I'm very lucky to be in in the job that I'm I'm in now. I I love the site. I've loved it since 2000 since the launch. I've been using it. I I like to tell people that you know from the first 20 years of my career, I just you know spent time on baseball reference not doing my other jobs, and now I actually get to be on Baseball Reference for my job, which is just rather amazing to me. <laughs> uh, so it's, uh, I, I'm so thrilled to to be a part of it and to, to help shape it uh, going forward.
0: And um, I saw one of the more recent um, upgrades or, or new offerings is the, was it Last Five? Is that what it is? Yes. Tell, tell us a little bit about that.
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm, it's actually a feature we've had on our hockey site for a while where it showed the, just the stats from the last five games. You know, we're, we're known as the historical reference, but we have a lot of contemporary stats and we're just looking for ways not only to to make the, the content more timely, uh, you know, you, you want to see what the most recent games are. So you, you go to the player's page and see those, those last five up front, but also we have so many other pages like game logs and splits and home run logs and all that stuff that that looked like the perfect place to entice users down those rabbit holes to go to those pages. And that, that's like the word we use internally. I love hearing folks like yourself say the word rabbit hole. Cause like that, that's something that we identified as a, a success metric for us is like when people start clicking, you know, they, they stick around and uh, you know, Showing those game logs of the last five games reminds people, oh, we have, you know, recent data, we have up to date data, we have, you know, also we have line by line, every game from this player's entire career, and it helps, uh, you know, just users quickly go to those and we're, you know, tracking all the clicks that we have on those now so we can learn, you know, we're trying to be uh, as focused on analytics for our product as we are for the athletes that we present so that's not something we've always been great at but we're trying to be better at it now you know when people sign up for stathead now we want to learn how they're joining stathead like what did they click on that made them want to join stathead that kind of thing so it's really fascinating stuff
0: yeah and i mean you brought up stathead we should we should talk about that i know you're still um you know trying to elbow me into subscribing and maybe <laughs> I'll do that this summer when I have some time to actually devote to it but what is what is stathead
1: that's that's a great question because we recently went through an <laughs> exercise to to answer that ourselves you know we had been you know stathead used to be known as the play index it was just it's a way to search the database on your own terms. You're not browsing the site anymore. You're searching through filters and and uh, you know, search queries and stuff like that to get the answers that you want. And we were marketing it towards you know journalists and people that work at the teams and stuff like that. But when we surveyed our users, we realized that those people are using it. But the vast majority of Stathead users are just people who really love baseball reference. So we've kind of repositioned everything to to try to attract those folks because so many people already do love Stathead, and, you know, we know this more out there. So it allows you, like, if you're just watching a game, you know, you're watching the Tigers game and a catcher is a triple short of the cycle. You just punch it in to see when's the last Tigers player to hit for the cycle. When's the last catcher to hit for the cycle? How many, ca- how many catchers have hit for the cycle at all? Uh, you know, how many players have multiple cycles in their careers. You can look all of this stuff up in Stathead with just a few filters and you just keep going. It's, it's a totally different type of rabbit hole rather than clicking links. You're, you know, tapping filters and well, when did this happen? You know, how, how often does this happen? And, uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun
0: yeah i I hear my wife right now telling me that my productivity <laughs> is going to go down even further if i if I move down that path but but I love it um I mean we we focused a lot on baseball, certainly um sports reference has an entire suite of products. Uh, is baseball far and away the
1: one that is the most trafficked I would imagine uh most trafficked uh no. No? <laughs> it's it it's you you would be surprised uh basketball and football are are right there um in terms of Stathead, it has a lot more Stathead subscribers because okay. of the the statistical nature of the game and and quite frankly the the stats just go back so far and the product is older um so for that reason but we have a ton of users on basketball a ton of users on on pro football uh hockey and soccer are growing as well uh yeah, so I, I I always assumed that baseball was the biggest by far, but th- there's really a big three. Okay, huh, interesting. Yeah, um,
0: I, I guess you know uh, to kind of bring this to a close here. Um, you you've referenced um, in the Negro Leagues, and and I've always been very curious about that. Who are two or three folks that we probably have never heard of that we should have heard of that if we wanted to go now and and go to baseball reference or go and find some more information on some some of these players who would you say are the three that perhaps have flown under the radar for a long time that we really Mm -hmm. should know as a baseball fan
1: that is a great question and if you can't give me three give me two or one or whatever Mm -hmm. that's a great question um i'll try to do it on like different levels i'm going to give you one that's a hall of famer i'll probably give you one from my outsider baseball team and then i'll maybe i'll try to think of one more that's uh that's uh you know not not like your your hall of fame level player but a guy you should know i I don't have one in mind for that yet but the hall of famer i'm gonna say bullet rogan is one that everyone should know especially given the prominence of shohei otani he was the ultimate two-way player uh, and also a manager as well. I think for for my money, he is the most valuable player in the history of the Negro leagues, ahead of Page, ahead of Gibson, just because he did it all. And he was he was a top le- he was a number one starter and a cleanup hitter. Like you you just don't see that happening at the same time. Babe Ruth did. And do those at the same time Shohei Otani is he's the first one since Bullet Rogan people should be talking about Bullet Rogan rather than Babe Ruth when they're talking about Shohei Otani so that that's one and and he did get in the Hall of Fame in 1998 but I still feel like he's vastly underrated compared to you know uh wonderful players Charleston Gibson Satchel Paige that they're all wonderful but Bullet Rogan needs to be in that conversation as well um, if I'm going to pick one from my uh, outsider baseball all-star team. Oh boy. Um, let's go with Totello Vargas. He played something like 30 years. <laughs> um, the, the stats are just amazing for him. He briefly played in the American Negro Leagues as well. And his name appears now as the all-time single season batting average leader. When he hit 471 for the New York Cubans. Yes, it was a shorter season. Yes, it's just based on the box scores that we have, but we can only assign records and batting titles based on the data we have. And he hit 471 that season with the data that we have. So he was absolutely wonderful. Um, uh, A fellow researcher is working on major league equivalencies that try to translate the careers of Negro League players into uh what they would look like in an a l con a l and nl context. This researcher is Eric Shalek. And you know his his numbers suggest that you know we could be looking at a guy who went for 3,000 hits if he was playing in, in the AL and NL. And I think he's a a fantastic player. And if I was going to pick one more All right. I'm going to pick another one from that outsider baseball team did not play as much in, in the U S either. Lazaro Salazar is, is another Cuban player who was a great hitter for contact patience, speed. He wasn't a a tremendous power hitter, but uh, he also happened to be a very good pitcher. Uh, Not quite a, the two-way player that bullet Rogan was, but he was fantastic on the Hill in his own right. And he also, as a manager, won 14 league titles in multiple countries. And I've really enjoyed learning about him because he was so beloved uh, in Mexico. And he was Cuban, but uh, played mostly in Mexico, but he played a lot in Cuba too. He ended up having a brain hemorrhage in, in the dugout at age 44 and died the next day while he was still an active manager. Just an unbelievable career that was cut too short um i love lazaro salazar i love every player on that outsider baseball team so
0: wow well thanks for those um that's great do you where where do you think your uh, next passion is going to go is it going to to will you be able to exhaust and fully satiate what you have going on with with the north american folks or are are you thinking you know japan korea moving you know off the continent or off the off the North American region at some point?
1: Yeah, that, that's a, a great question because uh I, I alluded to a team that I've been building box scores for. And that team is actually a an army team based in Hawaii around World War One. And that was a an army team that featured Bullet Rogan. He was their their captain and ace, but they also had Doby Moore, Heavy Johnson uh, several other negro league players playing in this army team all at once and i'm i think the next place i'm going to look is the opponents that they played against they played against this team that was based in hawaii that was a a team of players of chinese descent mm-hmm. a few of them went over to the mainland and played in the organized minor leagues they were the, the first players of of asian descent to do so Seem to be a lot of great players on that team as well. So that that's where my my next research lies. I think.
0: Well, this has been um really fascinating, very enjoyable. Adam, I, I can't thank you enough. Anything else that you would uh, like us to know about any of your personal projects or your professional projects?
1: Yeah, I I I think uh, if if people are not familiar with Baseball Reference and Stathead, I I encourage them to to check them out. Uh, we. It is made by people who, who absolutely love this stuff, so we, we hope that you enjoy it as well and see the passion that we've put into it. And yeah, uh, you you can just see on Twitter the the things that I'm working on in in, in regards to my research. So,
0: yeah, I mean, baseball twit is a, a it's a, you know daily, multiple times per day. If I'm being honest, where where we're getting something on some players that have really been below the radar, and I really appreciate you doing that. It's it's been very educational for me, so thank you.
1: I appreciate you giving me this chance to talk about it as well.
0: Conversations with Sports Fans is a production of The Sports Fan Project. Our theme music is, fittingly, entitled Wooden Championships by Lobo Loco. Please visit our website at thesportsfanproject.com for more information and to contact us. And if you've enjoyed this podcast, please share it with other sports fans you know and invite them to give it a listen.